All right, let's pray. Lord, again, we are grateful to assemble, to come together as your people, to learn, to grow. Help us, Lord, not to grow weary in well-doing, but to remember that this is a long call that you've given us, and that as we march to Zion together, that uh, we grow weary and feeble, and yet we have one another, we have your word and your spirit. Help us, Lord, to have our strength renewed, uh, that we might continue to press on, to grow and mature in Christ. Uh, Bless our study now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is continuing, really, our third lesson on abortion rights, Um, and this is our sixth lesson in this series on choosing sides, and again, working through Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body, which is, again, I've basically redacted and edited a little lightly some of her stuff and then added some of my own thoughts uh, as well. Abortion rights are presented primarily in our day as women's rights. Uh, remember, whoever defines wins in any conflict, if you could define the terms. So we have terms like uh, pro-life and not pro-abortion, but pro-choice. Isn't that, that sounds much more attractive, right? And so you, you want to choose labels and words that help promote your cause and make it more winsome. And so um, that's what's going on with terminology. If you're for women, uh, according to this view, then you are automatically for a woman's right to choose. After all, they say, it's her body, and she should have reproductive rights over her own body. But what if it's not her body to do with as she pleases? And what if there is another person involved? Do they have rights as well? And where do rights come from anyway? So are you for or against women? If you buy what the feminists are selling, and that's why, by the way, these movements are tied together, Uh, what they're selling, then approval of abortion is simply the next logical step. If you're for women, you're for the right to choose abortion. But if every woman is created in the image of God, and if every child is formed by God in the womb, and if we were created to love God and to honor God with our bodies... And if every human being has an eternal soul, and if in the end we are all accountable to God, then being for women would mean being against abortion, including but not limited to all the little girls that are aborted. What I'm about to talk about is hard, but unfortunately it's necessary. The euphemisms and political slogans of our day attempt to gloss over the hard realities of both history and current events. The show, uh, they show a phony facade, but leave out the heart-wrenching and painful realities. The Christian church has to face these realities if we are to also have the opportunity to present the gospel, the good news of hope. 
The early church wouldn't have been successful in overcoming abortion if it hadn't at the same time promoted very high views of women. Because of Christianity's opposition to abortion, modern critics portray it as hostile to women's rights. But surprisingly, in the early church, it was the church's opposition to abortion and infanticide that made it especially attractive to women. Here's why. A culture that practices abortion and infanticide is a culture that demeans women and disrespects their unique contribution to the task of reproduction. It's interesting, I just thought about this, how evolutionists argue that the they talk about the selfish gene and the survival of the fittest, that really what drives the evolutionary process is that everything wants to reproduce and live. And yet that same group of people is very supportive of abortion, which is very much puts a stop to the idea of reproduction and survival. This view of women objectifies women as sexual objects to be used. It devalues them as persons and turns them into objects to be used. Abortion is an attempt to eliminate the inconvenient consequences of using women in that way. At least that's one of the primary reasons. It doesn't treat women, uh, women's ability to gestate and bear children as a wondrous and awesome capacity, but rather as a liability and a disadvantage. To what? It doesn't value and protect women in their childbearing capacity, but rather it seeks to suppress women's bodily functions using uh, toxic chemicals and deadly devices to violently destroy the life that's in her. And so it turns out, of course, that there are two bodies at stake, and abortion expresses a disrespect for women's bodies as well as the baby's. That disrespect was common in Roman society at the time of the early Christian church. Rodney Stark, a sociologist of religion, writes, The Greco-Roman world was a male culture that held marriage in low esteem. And that's what we have happening again in our own culture. It's also, it also held women in low esteem, expressed partly through a high rate of abortion, which was a huge killer not only of children, but also of women during that period. Infanticide was widely practiced as well. In fact, leading thinkers of the ancient world, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, recommended infanticide as a legitimate state policy. Uh, During Roman times, it was not uncommon for infants to be killed as a form of birth control. It was not a crime as newborn infants were viewed as being, guess what? not fully human. Most of those babies, by the way, were girls. In fact, it was rare for a Roman family to have more than one daughter. Historians have uncovered a letter written in the first century B.C. by a Roman soldier to his pregnant wife back home saying, quote, if if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, expose it or leave it to die. In this context, the Christian church stood out for its high view of women. 
By prohibiting abortion and infanticide, it showed that it cherished the female contribution to bringing new life into the world, treating it as something worthy of respect and protection. Little girls were not to be thrown down the sewer, but loved and cared for as much as boys. And so the early church, early Christians, went beyond simply condemning abortion to providing actual alternatives, rescuing and adopting children who had been abandoned. It's common just to leave them on the street, leave them under the bridge, let them, again, be exposed. Today, as in ancient times, abortion and infanticide are practiced primarily against baby girls. Sex selection abortion has created a surplus of men in several nations, from China to India. And like so many things, when we think we're wiser than God, the unintended consequences are starting to come home. What do you do with a nation of young men who don't have enough women to go around? What do you think happens? Well, you're right. And worse. Girls are also more likely to die from malnutrition and neglect. Adult women are subject to violence and death at the hands of husbands and other family members. The United Nations estimates that 200 million women are demographically missing. In other words, if you just look at demographics, there should be that many more women than there are. Some have labeled it gendercide. A documentary on the issue says the three deadliest words in the world are it's a girl. So don't tell me that abortion is pro-women. The world desperately needs a biblical view of a woman's worth. In the early church, women were also drawn to Christianity because of its biblical sex ethic. It's no secret that the major factor driving the demand for abortion and infanticide is simply sexual immorality. Sex outside of marriage. Because again, the Christian view, biblical view, is that marriage is... The marriage bed is undefiled. That's the place of holiness. That's the place God made, called it good, blessed it. Sex outside of marriage produces children who are either unexpected or unwanted or both. Historian Michael Gorman writes that in the Greco-Roman world, by far the most frequent reason for abortion was to conceal illicit sexual activity. We have a problem. My girlfriend's pregnant. My concubine, my slave, my, uh, my lover. What are we going to do about this? There is a direct and obvious relationship between sexual hedonism and abortion. And sexual hedonism is another expression of a low view of women. I'm going to resist chasing some rabbits here. An ancient Greek and Roman, in ancient Greek and Roman culture, it was widely accepted that husbands would have mistresses, concubines, slaves, and prostitutes 
both male and female. An ancient Athenian saying was, quote, wives are for legal heirs, prostitutes are for pleasure. In Rome, the taxes collected from prostitution constituted a significant portion of the royal treasury. We see that in our own nation. You know, you, when you, when the government gets involved and they start making money on an operation, uh, whether it's legalized drugs, uh, my sister showed me a photograph. She lives in Illinois, and when they legalized pot, she said, well, where our business is located, right next door, there was a place that opened to sell legalized marijuana. And she sent a photograph. I think I have it on my phone. The line went for blocks of people lined up to buy it. And then she said, somebody showed us a receipt. And it was like for $220 that they purchased, and 80-something dollars of that was taxes. So do you think we're going to get more of that or less of that? Um, So, of course, I'm sure it's going to all go to help pay for public education. So um, promiscuity was even held to be divinely sanctioned in the ancient world. By contrast, the church fathers wrote sermons urging husbands not to have sex with slaves or prostitutes. These practices were not easy to eradicate. They had become so ingrained in the culture that everybody's doing this. It was just considered, it had been normalized. In the 4th century, John Chrysostom was still preaching on why it was not okay for married men to have sex with their slaves. An ancient Christian treatise on the sufferings endured by married women included, quote, uh, the humiliation of being replaced by servants in their husbands' affections. And what about the humiliation of those female servants who were coerced into sexual slavery? In Roman culture, and again, I've said this is not easy to talk about, but we need to talk about it. That's the problem. Church has, has been, we've been our own version of Pollyanna. We've been afraid to talk about these things, and that's a, a good bit of the problem. In Roman culture, sexual violence against poor and powerless women was widely accepted because they were regarded as social non-persons, and they were not thought to have any legal rights that could be violated. They're your property. And beginning in the 5th century, Christian leaders finally began to wield enough political power and influence to pass laws against sexual slavery. The church fathers called it coerced sin. Going to make you sin. How could the church preach against sexual sin when many women and, and, and uh, many women and men had no choice? For a slave to resist sexual advances of her or his master meant death. One historian notes that the most reliable index of the Christianization of an ancient society was the recognition of the injustice of sexual slavery. So let that historical fact soak in. This is important for us to understand the modern uh, arguments here for abortion. Today, as sex slavery and sex trafficking are again becoming widespread, modern Christians must recover their rich moral and humanitarian heritage. This is a battle we've been fighting for 2,000 years. As the Western world sinks back into a pre-Christian morality 
followers of Jesus once again are going to have to be countercultural. We have to go against the culture. We have to stand up to the culture. And we have to do it not just by waving our fingers and condemning what's going on. There is a place for that condemnation. But what's going to be most important is for us to present to the world a picture of love and hope and grace and reaching out to those who are needy, the children, the mothers. We have to do that. That is winsome. That is the gospel. And so, in what other ways was Christianity attractive to women? In ancient culture, many marriages were simply not love-based. Spouses were selected to deny to things like social status, property rights, legal heirs, and so forth. In sharp contrast, the New Testament taught men to do what? Love your wives as you love your own bodies. That's a radical position. The husband's headship was redefined as what? I'm the boss, I'm the king, I'm the ruler. No. It was redefined as self-sacrifice modeled on Christ's sacrificial love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Men were not to abandon their wives through divorce. They were not to abuse their wives physically or emotionally. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands were positively commanded not to seek out slaves and prostitutes for sex, but instead to keep up regular sexual relations with their wives. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.5, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. To the shock of the ancient world, the New Testament taught that men, not just women, were to be faithful to their spouses. This was new. Christianity stood out as radically different because it taught that a husband actually wrongs his wife by adultery. Such even-handed treatment was revolutionary. Likewise, Paul called for a symmetry unheard of in pagan culture. He said, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, But the husband does, and likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Nothing like this had ever been said before in the Roman Greco world. The stress that he was describing an obligation, not an option in this passage, Paul borrows legal language, the word used for Marital duty normally refers to debt of money. You owe this to one another. It's a debt. It's an obligation. The word used for authority included state authority. The word for deprive normally meant to defraud or to refuse payment. Don't steal from your spouse. Don't take what's not yours to take. Paul didn't care that in the ancient world men's sexual freedom was considered complete Completely acceptable. Boys will be boys. In the church, there was a new law. Men were called to sexual fidelity and exclusivity just as much as women were, 
at a time when wives were considered legally the possessions of their husbands, Paul's writings, the Bible's writings were radical. So I would just say as a warning, I hope no one here is even contemplating such a thing. If you're thinking about leaving Christianity, women, you're in trouble. You have no protection. The world will chew you up and spit you out. By elevating the status of women, they delivered a severe blow to the double standard that was the pre-Christian or pagan norm And by keeping sex within marriage, the biblical ethic drove down the demand for abortion and and infanticide. Children were born into families committed to loving and caring for them. You say, well, I know some Christian families that's not true. Well, of course, there are many. The church is made up of what? Sinners. And some are really broken and some track in and bring a lot of pagan ideas and notions with them. So there's no claim. That's one of the things glorious about the Christian faith is it's a self-correcting faith. If somebody says, well, he's a church member, and look what he says, and look what he does, and it's contrary to what the Bible says, we say, yeah, and the Bible says that's wrong. That's sin. So the Bible is the standard. There are broken people and people who fall short of the standard. Are you ever worse than your theology? (laughs) I am. Until you say... There are people who are better than their theology, thankfully. And there are people who are worse than their theology. But the the truth matters. That is the standard, and that is the standard that corrects all of us. And so, uh, there's a real war against women. From ancient times, the principle is that a culture that engages in abortion, infanticide, and sexual license is a culture that disrespects women. And it's schizophrenic, right? So we have all this promotion of women's rights, of abortion rights, and all the things we hear, the Me Too movement. And again, what happens is, without me, I don't have, I'm not going to get into all this right now. Are there truths in those movements? Yes, there are. Are there, are there abuses that those movements are attempting to address? Yes, there, yes, they are. But when you abandon the gospel and you abandon any transcendent standard of ethics, the problem is there are no boundaries. And so the very same people that, that argue for women needing more respect and being treated better are the same ones that, again, are promoting the murder of little girls. Same ones that will have their, their superstars stand up in front of the whole world and as somebody pointed out this year's Super Bowl halftime show, um, I turned it off after about 15 seconds. Uh, they couldn't have a wardrobe malfunction this year because they didn't have enough clothes on to, to malfunction. We have a, a porn show up from the, from the hottest icons in the country for women's rights acting like what? Sexual objects. You see the schizophrenia here? You see it's crazy? They've lost their minds? And then they look at you like you're the one that's nuts. That was a rabbit trail, excuse me. So, 
At first sight, modern societies may seem to contradict that principle. After all, Western culture accepts these practices, yet women have greater rights and opportunities than anywhere else in the world. But at what price? Economist Jennifer Roback Morris writes, Here is the bargain we professional women have been making. To achieve higher levels of education and professionalism, women are required to suppress their fertility with birth control, to neuter themselves with toxic chemicals, breaking their peak child, uh, uh, with toxic chemicals during their peak childbearing years. The World Health Organization classifies hormonal contraceptives as a, quote, class one carcinogenic, that is, that is a substance known to cause cancer in humans, since all contraceptives have a failure rate when uh, women then resort to abortion as a backup or the morning after pill. According to the statistics from the Guttmacher Institute, about half of the women getting abortions claim they were using contraception during the month that they got pregnant. To avoid being derailed from their education or career path, women are urged to, quote, meet their sexual needs through casual affairs without emotional commitment. Reporter Hannah Rosen writes approvingly that during college, quote, women benefit greatly from living in a world where they can have sexual adventure without commitment and where they can enter into temporary relationships that don't get away, get in the way of their future success. The problem is that when women are finally established in their careers, many are finding that their fertility has declined, sometimes damaged by sexually transmitted diseases, and they are no longer able to have the families that they want. At that point, they are subjecting themselves to invasive, expensive, and often disappointing fertility treatments or turning to morally problematic practices such as surrogacy. When they do get pregnant, women who have had abortions are more likely to suffer complications such as premature birth so that their babies spend months in the neonatal intensive care unit if they live. Note, many contraceptives as well as fertility treatments result in the abortion of babies. Many women, including Christian women, are ignorant of these facts. It is essential that we are all properly informed on these matters and that we not simply make assumptions or believe everything we're told. Please find a competent Christian physician, pastor, others who can walk through these questions and issues so that you know for sure that what you're doing is not inadvertently or ignorantly aborting children. The devil lies. Now, we're going to come back to this topic in some future studies, but I, I wanted to hit that at this point. Now, regarding the church, it is crucial that the church once again becomes known as the place that values women. Rejecting abortion is a way of expressing respect not only for the child, but also for the mother. The church should strive to be known as a sanctuary for those wounded by the callous cynicism of the abort abortion culture. We've all seen some of these 
undercover videos of Planned Parenthood where they're joking and laughing about abortions and selling baby parts. That's how they think of this. It's called the abortion industry for a reason. Women who've had abortions are often afraid to even talk to Christians about it. So what message is the church sending women that many are afraid of reaching out to the most, those who are, should be most equipped to help them? As John Piper says, quote, the gospel teaches us how to live, but it also rescues us when we fail to live the way that we're supposed to live. Meanwhile, across the globe, a pastor has discovered a creative way to help abandoned babies. Some of you have seen a short video of this. Uh, In a ragged uh, working-class neighborhood in Seoul, South Korea, one house has a small drop box built into the wall. A hand-scrawl sign outside the drop box says, quote, if you can't take care of your disabled babies, don't throw them away or leave them on the street. Bring them here. The box is lined with a soft pink and blue blanket and has a bell that rings when the little door is opened. The drop box is in the home of Presbyterian pastor Lee Zhong Rak. And since 2009, Lee has saved the lives of more than 600 children. He and his, <clears throat> he and his wife adopted 10, the maximum number allowed in South Korea then arranged for the adoption of others. Inscribed along the top of the drop box is Psalm 27.10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Pastor Lee's concern for the disabled started when he and his wife gave birth to a baby that was severely brain damaged. The tragedy sparked a cascade of questions that even caused him to rethink his Christian convictions. He said, I asked God... Why would you give me a handicapped child? As he cared for his helpless son, however, Lee began to be convinced of the preciousness of life. At the hospital where his son spent most of his early years, he began to encourage other families with disabled children. In South Korea, Lee says, babies with deformities are seen as a national shame. It's a culture addicted to perfection where cosmetic surgeries have become as common as haircuts. The abandonment of babies is not only a problem in South Korea, however. In 2016, the first baby box in the United States was installed at the Woodburn Fire Department in Woodburn, Indiana. Under Indiana's safe haven law, A mother has 30 days after the birth of her baby to decide if she wants to keep the child or turn it over to authorities with no questions asked. When a mother places her baby inside this baby box, it locks automatically and authorities are alerted. Within three minutes of the call, emergency personnel arrive to take care of the baby. Appropriately enough, it was a woman who was herself abandoned as an infant who founded the Safe Haven Baby Boxes organization, which is now sponsoring additional depositories in other states for mothers who are in crisis. Monica Kelsey says, quote, As a child who was abandoned by by, by my birth mother two hours after I was born, I am honored that Christ 
has me spearheading a program that will save the lives of abandoned children. In the ancient world, Christians were distinctive for their, what we call, humanitarian efforts. Taking care of babies and slaves, of widows and orphans, of the sick and the elderly, of the unwanted and the abandoned. And I want to just say something about this. Um, I've thought about this a good bit lately in, in a number of contexts. But we have got to abandon this dualistic notion of spirituality uh, versus the material world. Remember this dualism, this two-story, upper, upper story, lower story idea. God made us body and soul. And if you want to do something spiritual, if I say, how's your spiritual life? Almost inevitably, uh, when I ask that question, someone tells me about their Bible reading and their prayer life, which is good. That is a part of your spiritual life. But what if somebody says, oh, um, I started volunteering to work for Heartbeat. I help a single mom once a week by watching her baby for a few hours so she can have a break. I go out and uh, help get diapers. Is that your spiritual life? Oh, yes. Every bit as important as praying and reading your Bible is, is living out those prayers for people in service to people and in, ser- and in loving them, right? Which is what? The greatest commandment. Read the Bible. Love God. Love your neighbor. How do I love my neighbor? Well, how did God tell you to love your neighbor? You want to love God? Then do what he says toward your neighbor. That's spirituality. That's uh, Spirituality is not up there somewhere floating in the clouds. Spirituality is right in front of you. It's doing the dishes. It's helping. It's serving. It's finding those who are needy, who can't help themselves, or maybe who just won't help themselves because nobody's ever taught them any better. They're ignorant. Sometimes they're foolish. They're certainly sinful. Do sinners need rescuing? That takes grace. Yeah, but they dug this hole themselves. They shouldn't have been out doing this or that. You're right. They shouldn't have been. Now look. Now what? You're going to offer them the gospel, the hope, the help, the change, so they don't keep doing that, and so another generation doesn't keep doing that, and another generation after that, because it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop unless the gospel intervenes, and boy, am I grateful for some people, some spiritual people who intervened somewhere back there in my family's life that changed the course of the river forever, for generations forever. So... We need to be thinking more in terms of how to do this. And no, there is no, there are no small acts, uh, that don't count. You know, sometimes, sometimes you get the opportunity to do some grand thing. But most of the time, you just have the opportunities to do little things every day. Look around. Say, well, I looked around, I didn't see anything. Well, look, look again. Ask. How many needy people are in Nacogdoches? How many needy mothers? How many pregnant women who need help? How many babies? I didn't say you had to quit your job or leave your other responsibilities, but you can find a little time. Once a week, once a month, 15 minutes a day. 
some phone calls. I mean, we could we need to brainstorm in this regard. Today, as the West sinks back into pre-Christian practices, we must once again be ready to stand with courage and conviction. We need to confront the underlying worldview of personhood theory with its dehumanizing impact and then find practical ways to express the Bible's high view of human life. As the population ages, the question of personhood is also going to come to the forefront in new and troubling ways as we care for a growing population of the elderly. In addition, new ethical challenges are being raised by technology. And so in our next lessons, we're going to analyze practices such as euthanasia and eugenics, stem cell research, and the sale of fetal tissue while offering life-giving Christian alternatives. Any questions, comments, observations? we got a few minutes here. Yeah, scriptures say, God says, all those who hate, or actually it's referring to wisdom uh, being personified, all those who hate me love death. And so there's built-in judgments that God has made the world a certain way. If you jump off a high building, uh, the law of gravity is going to uh, give a certain result when you hit the bottom. Um, there are just certain facts. I was reading a book this week on wood turning, and I told, I think, Steve about the guy said, uh, uh, if you're dealing with a motor, if motor's got a, is a half-horsepower motor, a half a horse is stronger than a whole person. And if you try to compete with it, it will win. So don't, don't do that. Okay, well, when you sin, when you and I sin, we are becoming criminals. We're breaking the law. We're not law-abiding citizens in God's world. And there are consequences to breaking the law of gravity and to breaking moral laws and one and it's not there's the obvious ones of things like abortion we got to cover up clean up our sin right we we don't want the consequences of our sins and so now we're going to fix that we don't want the inconvenience we don't want to have to self sacrifice so when we have a child that's got a problem we want to get rid of that because that's going to be difficult and we could go on and on with that but what about how this tears up relationships and families and societies, and then we end up with cultures where we got, you know, four four guys to every girl. What implications does that have for sexuality and for future families and for society in general? And how, so now we got to have other ways of satisfying people. Now we have a whole industry of sex dolls because there's a lot of lonely men in the world and hey, you can't get a real woman, we'll just make, make one. And you can buy it through Amazon or something. Again, that's embarrassing to even be talking about this. But that's the reality. This isn't some little, little thing. This is huge. It begins to impact our economics. It begins to... It, let's go back to what Tim was just saying here in Europe where this is way ahead of us in terms of the population issue not replacing. And so now when you go to vote, um, you have one group of people, who's young people primarily, who want the government to pay for their education, right, and their health care 
and their vacations, and we want all the tax dollars to come to us because we're young and we, we need these things. And then you got old people over here who say, well, we need, we need other things. We're sick and, and we need care and our children won't take care of us. They're, they're too busy having their own fun and life. So now the government is the nanny state. It's going to try to take care of everybody, but somebody's got to pay for that, right? And what are we doing? We're killing off the taxpayers to boot. And so now the, the economic pie is getting smaller, not bigger, but the demands are getting bigger. Does that sound like a recipe for social conflict? War? We could go on and on. God made the world to operate on his terms, not our terms. And when we decide to do it our way, it's a mess. That's a gross understatement. Anybody else? All right, let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for instructing us, for giving us a high view of humanity made in your image, of women in particular. Help us to love our women, to respect them, to honor them, and help us to reach out to other women in this community who are needy, who are abused or uh, taken advantage of, who have sinned in some cases themselves, who have trouble, who are afraid. Uh, Help us, Lord, to show them the love of Christ and the gospel, not just with words but with deeds. Help us to sacrifice for the sake of others that we might love you and love them. Bless us now as we prepare for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.